As we turn to Hebrews, we're going to conclude the 10th chapter of this letter. And in fact, we're going to mark the end of our journey for this year through Hebrews. We'll come back in the very early, in fact, I guess really late winter, um, to begin back. And we're going to cover the 11th chapter next year at length. It's going to be a, I pray, an amazing journey. We'll look back at those great saints that the author is quoting about. We'll look at those passages in the Old Testament and we'll think about what God is telling us about faith and about what it means to be a person with faith, a person living by faith a person with true faith, and that will be an important thing to distinguish as we look at even today's text. The author is setting up what it means to have a living faith, if you will, not some faith like the demons have. James says, you, you believe? Is that what we're talking about, just simply believing facts? No, for even the demons believe, right, as James says. But no, we're called to a faith, a living faith in a truth and a person in his work, and so we're going to see that today. But we recognize that chapter 10 serves as kind of a transitionary point in this letter. Before this, you have an entirely uh, amazing discussion of theology and truth, typology. We've looked at all those things at length that the author is using to establish Christian doctrine for us, to help us to understand what has happened, what Christ accomplished, how all the Old Testament pointed to it, and is in fact fulfilled in it. All these things that the author has spent much time to explain to his audience and by extension to us. Now, after he did all that, he, he went to this period of time where he began to give some exhortations, tell us some things that we need to do in light of these things. For instance, he tells us that we should boldly approach God. Now, this is really the message of Scripture. In the Old Testament, there was this curtain, right, this curtain that kept us out of the Holy of Holies. In fact, really, for Uh, except one group of people, the Levites, nobody could even enter the holy place, much less the holiest place. So again, there was this barring, if you will, from the approach to God in one sense. But in Christ Jesus, He has ripped the veil, right? It is gone. That earthly veil no longer has significance. In fact, He says the veil Christ went behind, this author says, is the heavens. He went into glory where He ministers. That's His inner sanctuary. The holiest place is in the glory's of God's presence. And there he says, he cleansed the way that we may approach boldly. So if Christ did that for us, why would we not approach? Why would we withhold or withdraw from the presence of God? No, we need to eagerly and boldly go before the throne of grace. And then he says, we should hold fast our confession. This is the message everywhere in scripture. If you believe something, stand fast upon it. Hold strongly to it. Don't waver. If you believe it, stand on it. In fact, that's really, if you want to be honest about it, uh, in a nutshell, how you could describe the argument of Hebrews. Do you believe in Christ? If so, stand upon it, whatever the consequences. If you don't, you'll melt away. You'll melt away, and we won't be surprised by that. And so this is the entire dynamic. So stand on your confession. And then lastly, consider one another. Consider one another. We've been going through 1 Corinthians in our Sunday school class. We just finished today, 13 weeks in that great letter. And the message there is really love one another, be unified in the faith, quit being divided up, divisive, arguing, battling over insignificant things, ultimately join together for the work of the Lord. And here the author of Hebrews is reminding them you weren't called in a vacuum, but to be part of the body of Christ, the church, And that means you have not only responsibilities 
in terms of serving the Lord, things that are fitting to do, but you have responsibilities to your brothers and sisters in this body. Hit the mic, sorry. Uh, We saw this a few weeks ago. We talked about this, didn't we? That we are called to be members of the body, and therefore we are all needed to join together for the body to function properly. Um, You can see this message here implicitly. If you leave, and if you were a part of the body, then you're denying that part of the body to the local congregation. But he's going to go beyond that, isn't he, to say if you leave, it says something more essentially about whether or not you were really ever a part of the body to begin with. And so this is a stark message. But then he goes into a warning. If you didn't get the message there, he's taking it as bluntly as he can. He says, listen, it's a fearful thing to do what you're contemplating doing. Because if you leave, what will it say? And he draws on that imagery of the Old Testament that we've seen throughout this letter, that we've seen throughout Scripture. He reminds us over and again in this letter, do you remember the stories you were taught as children? These are Hebrew Christians. These are ethnically Jewish people. They grew up hearing the Old Testament stories. Do you remember what happened in the wilderness? Many, many people left Egypt, but few entered the land of promise. In fact, no one who was of age uh, during the rebellion in the wilderness, right? Only Joshua. But what he says here in Caleb, but what he says here is, you remember that story? God had revealed his wonders to them. He had shown his glory to them. He had led them. He had provided for all their needs, and they rebelled against God at every turn. They did not trust God. And it was shown again and again in their claims, wouldn't it be better that we just go back into captivity in Egypt? Wouldn't that be better? And he says in this, they showed their rebellion against God, and therefore they died outside the promise in the wilderness. Now our reaction to that is, how foolish can you be? They were given everything, they were shown everything, and yet they rebelled against the God who gave them everything and showed them everything. And the author says, much like Nathan did to David, you're the man. This is you, because you've received all the glories of the gospel. You've been taught how everything has been fulfilled in Christ and what He did. And yet you, in unbelief, are going to walk away. And like them, you'll die metaphorically in the wilderness outside the promise. Because it will reveal that you were never part of the true people of God. So there is a stark warning here. And you'll remember how it ended. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, to be in the Lord's hands, we said last week, it's important to think about, is considered from two different sides scripturally. David said, as a person of God, as a man after God's own heart says, let it be as if in the Lord's hands. In other words, put me in the Lord's hands, he says at a pivotal moment. And here it says, if you're an enemy of God, you don't want to be in the Lord's hands. You don't want to be in the Lord's hands because, my friends, it brings judgment. And he says at the very beginning of that passage we looked at last week that nothing remains for those who rebel except what? Certain judgment. A certain and fearful expectation of judgment. So this author is not hiding these warnings from us. These are fearful warnings. We looked at this last week. People have trouble and and worry about these warnings and try to figure out how to understand them and, and worry that these are things pointed to true believers in Christ. They aren't. The entire purpose of the letter is to say that if you're a true believer in Christ, you will remain. You will endure to the end. But if you walk away, then that also says something about where you stand. So, my friends, it just makes sense. How will they have an excuse when they stand before God 
if they say, I heard everything. I heard the preached word. I heard apostles of the Lord proclaim Jesus. I heard how all of it fulfilled the Old Testament. I knew all of those things. And I said, you know what? Jesus is no better than the blood of bulls and goats. I'm heading back. I'm heading back. He says, you'll be without excuse before the Lord on Judgment Day. So my friends, there are warnings, but praise the Lord, wherever there's warnings in this letter, it's usually followed up by some words of encouragement. And I think it's because the sternness of the warnings that sometimes we need to hear those warnings and take them seriously, but then realize that they're not there to beat down the people of God. They're there to shake us and make us realize that we need to take seriously our commitment to the Lord by His grace and that we then you're to be encouraged. And so we're going to see that again today. So I'm going to read the text again. Brother Ben read it for us a moment ago, but let's hear it again and be thinking about it. He says, But recall the former days in which you were, after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me and my chains. And joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Amen. Amen. The word of the Lord. Now, as we come to this today, we want to look at two points and cover this text. First of all, an encouragement to remember, and second of all, an encouragement to endure. So if we think about it in these two ways, there's times where we need encouragement to both remember and to endure. And I would say to you, if you think about We mentioned today we're having uh, the Lord's table next week. One of the functions of the Lord's table is to remember, right? To call us to remember what Christ did for us. As we come to this table, we remember what Christ did for us. And we remember that there are promises for the people of God, promises that will one day come to pass. And so we want to begin there with this encouragement to remember because as we think about this author always coming back to encouragement, that tells us something about what he believes about his audience. He's encouraging them because he believes they are truly the people of God. He does not believe that they will be shown to be false by walking away, but he believes that they are truly the people of God, and it will be evident in what they do. In fact, if you look at the last verse for today, he makes it very clear. He says, but we are not those who draw back to perdition. No, we are those who believe to the saving of the soul. So he tells you what he believes. He believes these are believers. And so as we come to this, he's going to give them some encouragement. You've heard the sternness of the warning, but there's something you need to hear to encourage your walk. And my friends, we need to remember this. People come to these passages of warnings, and they treat them as hateful. Right? They say, oh, these warnings are terrifying, and, and I don't like to read them. But you know, oftentimes in your life, warnings are given out of love. Right? Think about all the people that warn you your parents, your grandparents, teachers, principals. Oftentimes, if you don't heed those warnings, there's a painful end to those things. How about as adults? Employers warn you, hey, you need to get this figured out or whatever. How about police officers, the legal system? There are warnings given. 
And they are intended sometimes, in fact, I would say often, to help us or to aid us or to keep us from trouble. And so, my friends, we need to recognize in that that oftentimes warnings are given in love. Certainly growing up, we can think about our parents giving us many stern warnings that we needed to listen to. And they were given to us by our parents because our parents were given the charge of raising us and taking care of us and and teaching us. In the same way, this illustration is going to be used in this very letter of God. God, like a good parent, chastens his children. He warns them and they don't listen. He disciplines them. We all as believers who have been in this walk very long have experienced that. The Lord chastens his own. And so it's something that we recognize here. Warnings are not always bad things. It's that rebellious nature in us that makes us hate warnings because we don't like being told what to do. But the reality is God is looking out for our best interest because if he doesn't warn this, and for comfort's sake we walk away from the faith, and it means that we're not saved, we never were saved, that's to our own destruction. So he's using the means of these warnings to shake people up and make them realize that this is serious. Our walk, our life, is a testimony of what we believe. And so we see this here. Uh, These are warnings given to the people of God. I believe the author intends that uh, by the Holy Spirit. And he says here that this encouragement is to the people he's been warning. There is a, a word of encouragement here. And he starts immediately by contrasting, doesn't he? But a word of contrast. I've said this warning. You need to hear it. Don't lessen that warning. But now listen to this. And what does he say? He says, recall or remember the former times, the former days. How often would problems be alleviated by simply remembering things? How many times do we get mad over a situation with a friend or a neighbor and let it blow up when if we kept things in perspective, we might keep that from happening? How many times do family members get mad at each other over something that really doesn't matter all that much, but we lose perspective for a moment? We don't remember love. We don't remember the relationships, whatever it may be. How often does that happen in churches? You hear about it all the time. People get mad over the smallest thing and leave a church. A people that they had once covenanted with and loved, they say, oh, this is just impossible to endure. And you'll remember a famous example kind of given regularly of a church in Texas that had a church split over ham at a fellowship meal. It would seem laughable if it wasn't so sad. Again, we need to recognize that it's sometimes by losing perspective and not remembering that these things happen. And what our author here says is, in the situation you're in, where you're failing to remember all that God has done for you, you're failing to remember your past, you need to remember what God has done, the situations you've been in, because you'd find the answer to your situation there. Well, what does he say about these former days? He says, it was after you were illuminated. Now, I think... uh, Some of the other translations uh, say enlightened. They're both good. They both mean to have light given to you, which this word fotizo, it means to be given light. And what it directly speaks to is a light that was given to you. It means that God had blessed you with knowledge. God had blessed you with revelation. So these believers that are being addressed here are ones that God had given revelation to. He had told them through whatever means he had used, preachers and apostles and the Word of God, he had used those means to reveal to them something very important, that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. He is the one who 
came here and gave his life as an atonement for his people. All these realities are found in Christ, and this has been given to you. Now remember this, that after you'd been given this revelation, if you'd been enlightened, after you'd been illuminated by God's grace, then something happened. What was it? Well, he says, after this you suffered many persecutions. He's talking to the very people who were thinking about leaving now because times have gotten rough. He says, have you forgotten? When you first entered into the church by God's grace, when you first understood who Christ was, when all those things first happened, you endured the same sorts of things. You endured persecutions, trials, difficulties. He says you endured a great struggle with suffering. Now, he doesn't mean bloodshed here. We know this because later he says you've not yet gotten to that point where there's the shedding of blood. But they've suffered for their faith. Well, well, how have they done that? Well, look what he says in verse 33. Partly while you were made a spectacle, a spectacle, theatrizo. This is the word we get theater from today. You were made a show. You were made a spectacle. People looked upon you and mocked you. You were like actors in a comedic play in which people are mocking you and laughing at you. That was what you experienced when you first expressed to all those around you that you were a Christian. They mocked you. They laughed at you. You were ridiculed for your faith. My friends, that is not easy. If you've ever been in a situation where you might be ridiculed for your faith, you know that is not easy. And they endured that. But look what else he says. You were made a spectacle in this way by reproaches. And that word is insults, more or less. By insults and by tribulations. These are hardships. Maybe for some people they lost their job. Maybe for some people they lost friends. Maybe for some people they lost their family. Whatever the case might be, this cost you something, he says. You were made a mockery of. You lost things. You paid a price, if you will, uh, to express that you were a Christian. It cost you something. But notice what else he says. It wasn't just what you endured, but you endured it with others. Notice what he says there. And partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. You know what the author means here? He means when Christians were being cornered and mocked, you went over and stood with them. You didn't leave them alone. You didn't act like, I don't know who those people are and walk by. You said, I'm with them. If you're going to mock them, let me join in in receiving it as well. You didn't hide the fact that you were a Christian. You openly identified with people who were being scorned, mocked, and troubled. You did all those things in those days, this author says. And he says, I know this is true because I had experience in it myself. For you had compassion on me in my chains. When I was locked up in prison, you didn't say, we don't know who this guy is. You didn't fail to visit me or identify with me. But you came and visited me while I was in jail. You came and identified with me. You ministered to me in some way. You comforted me in some way. You had compassion upon me in my time of trial and need. I know this of you. And if you think that's the extent of it, look at what he goes on to say. And accepted the plundering of your goods. The loss of things. The loss of property. The loss of finances. You experience this. It cost you something. I didn't read that fully, did I? He doesn't say you just accepted. 
He says, you joyfully accepted. Think of how far you've fallen, he says, that a few years back, they came and took things for you, from you because you said you were a Christian, and you smiled through it. You had joy through it because you said, whatever they take from me physically, I've got an inheritance that can never be taken from me. I've got glories and joys that cannot be taken from me. He says, what's happened? How have you changed so much in so short a time that now you're thinking of walking away from me even being identified with the people of the Lord because it's too uncomfortable to be identified with them? My friends, it's an amazing thing to think about. When he talks about sharing, by the way, he's using the Greek word koinonia, which is a very important New Testament word, which speaks of community, right, of being one people. He's like, you didn't even think twice about jumping in and sharing in troubles and difficulties. What's happened? How have you changed? My friends, I think that there's kind of an implicit message here for us as Christians. Because we can change. We can be on fire for the Lord. And over time, be different. Be different. Not as passionate, not as caring, not as involved. It doesn't always mean our our faith was faulty, or I shouldn't say faulty, but false. It doesn't always mean that. It can just mean we need to remember the former times. What does the Lord say in Revelation? Remember your first love. I hold this against you that you've forgotten your first love. What's the antidote to that? Remember your first love. Remember those things that were formerly so important to you. Think about where you've fallen and why you've fallen to this point. Oftentimes, you've put other things in the way. Your priorities are off. You've sometimes maybe just put it on the back burner for a while. That is not how our spiritual lives are supposed to be. So this author says, remember, that's the first thing we need to do, is remember the former times. Remember the way things once were. And the reality is, in our sanctification, we're supposed to be growing in our faith, aren't we? Growing in our walk with the Lord. So it isn't just that you should remember your former times and try to keep it there. It's sad if it's gone like this. But we ought to be growing in the Lord. That's the point that... I think he's got here in mind is remember where you've been and then let's get back there and with the idea of moving forward in the Lord. Now, he says this. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. I want you to think about the order that he has here because at the heart of all this is faith. What is the answer going to be to what the people need? It's faith. Chapter 11 is going to be all about what you need is faith. He's going to introduce that here in just a moment where he reminds us of what Habakkuk proclaimed years earlier. The just shall live by faith. Do you want to live righteously before God? There's only one way to do it, and that's in Christ. And you can only be righteous in Christ by faith. And so again, that's going to be the answer. Faith. So it begins with faith. And then he says you need to endure. Don't cast away uh, these things that you formerly exhibited, right? Don't cast away your confidence. You must endure. We're going to come to endurance in just a second. This is a model of the Christian walk because it ends with the expectation of a hope that we'll receive, a reward that we'll receive. Well, if you think about that model, that's a biblical model for our walk of faith. We are justified by faith. We are sanctified through many ups and downs, many trials and tribulations. We are sanctified to grow by the power of the Holy Spirit in this walk until one day we receive the promise of God at our glorification. 
So he's really just talking about the Christian existence here. If you believed, if you were saved by faith, if you've been transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit, if you've been justified, then realize that troubles will be attendant upon that. And that's going to bring us to our second point this morning, which is the call or the encouragement to endurance or to endure. Because the reality is we must endure. We must endure. This is a message given over and over in the Scriptures. Sometimes talking about persevering, right? Those who persevere to the end shall be saved, Jesus said. Well, again, what we want to recognize here is that our inspired author wants us to see the need for this encouragement to endure. We must have endurance in this run. If you look at those verses again, you see it. Our confidence is made sure that we make it to the end. We don't earn our reward by making it to the end. It's the evidence of a transformed life. Those who are truly born again by the Spirit will not melt away. That's what he's saying. And so as we recognize this, he's saying there must be some endurance. What great thing is ever achieved outside of some form of endurance? Over and over again, Paul uses illustrations in his letters of athletes. Why do you think that's so important? Athletes are an obvious example of endurance because nobody becomes a great athlete overnight. Nobody says, you know, tomorrow I'm going to be an Olympic wrestler. Now, if I told you that's my goal, you're probably going to laugh at that at my age. But certainly you're like, okay, you're going to have to lose a lot of weight. You're going to have to start lifting weights. You're going to have to start training. And it's still not a realistic goal, even five years out. I'm getting older. I'm not getting younger, right? And this is the reality. Athletes must be dedicated. They must endure. They must be, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, temperate in all things. They can't be changeable by the moment. Many of us aren't even thinking about eating some treat or some dessert. And we drive by, we see a sign that says, oh, they've got some new Sunday someplace. Hey, pull in and try that. An athlete doesn't do that. An athlete says, my diet has to be absolutely set. My training has to be absolutely set. You call them, you say, hey, do you want to go uh, to the zoo tomorrow? They say, I can't. I've got training all day tomorrow. They have to endure in all those things. Why? That they may receive the prize. That they may receive the prize. And our author's saying, in a very similar way, we have to learn to endure. We have to learn to endure. We can't be shaken by every bump in the road. Oftentimes we are. We have to learn not to be. That's part of the, the grace of God working in us by the power of the Holy Spirit is to make us a little more enduring than we once were. A little bump happens in church. Hey, let's keep all things in perspective. A little bump happens in our life. Well, I thought once I became a Christian, there wouldn't be any more bumps. Then you haven't read the Bible because it tells you when the storms of life come. Jesus didn't say if the storms of life come. He says when they come, when they come. So, my friends, we need to keep all this in mind and realize there is a need for an endurance. And the reason it's so important for us to hear Has there ever been an age where Christians needed endurance more than now? What I mean by that is not that we need it more now, but I think we exhibit it less than ever before. Christians, I'm not trying to chastise us. I'm speaking to myself too. We are soft compared to our brothers and sisters around the world. We are soft compared to Christians in generations past. A couple of Wednesday nights ago, I mentioned to you all that our brother, 
Coram Anthony was telling us, giving us an update about the churches in Pakistan and that they'd endured great suffering. They'd burnt down like 30-some churches. At first they thought nobody had been injured. Several people died, many more injured. And he sent a video to me this week. Maybe some of you received it too. Of those churches gathered together, they put up tents and they gathered outdoors. They didn't have a church to gather in. And they're singing praises and they're getting ready to worship together. And burning down churches, attacking Christians, doesn't stop those Christians from worshiping publicly. They'll be back next Sunday to worship again. My friends, do we have that level of commitment? Do we have that desire that, hey, whatever it costs me, we are the people of the Lord. We're going to gather for worship. My friends, what about our fathers that came before us? You had men who took a stand like Martin Luther, who it would cost him his very life. He believed it would. It almost did on more than one occasion, but one very famous occasion at Worms almost cost him his life. My friends, that's commitment. That's endurance. That's saying, I know what I'm supposed to do, and I'm going to see it through. Not as one earning something, but one as a servant of the Lord who saved me by His grace. Therefore, I desire to live my life for His glory, whatever it may cost me. My friends, that's the endurance our author says we need. We need. We don't need to be those that melt away, those that show that we have no endurance whatsoever. Some little thing doesn't go our way and our entire walk is shaken. One thing doesn't go our way. We're now looking for another church or whatever it may be. This is not how Christians are to live. We are to be a people of endurance, a people who recognize life brings ups and downs. I loved in the second volume of Pilgrim's Progress, which we looked at in the spring, uh, one of the characters was asked about all the troubles that he endured. And you know what he said? Nothing has happened to me except that which is common to all pilgrims. Can you think about that for a moment? Nothing has happened to me except what is common to all human beings who live in this world. And brothers and sisters, nothing has happened to me except that which is common to all Christians who have ever lived in this world. If we have that perspective, it will help us a little bit to endure difficult situations. Life isn't always fair. Life isn't always easy. My friends, thank goodness we have Jesus. Thank goodness we have the indwelling spirit to help us through this world. And so, my friends, we need to be a people who endure. As we come to the closing here, I want us to look at these last few verses because it's interesting um, what our author does here. After saying you need to endure to receive the promise, I think what he means here for a moment is just simply that's what we're saying, that you have to make it to the end. It's not that your fa- you, know, you gussied your faith up and made it to the end. It's an evidence that God has been at work in you. It's an evidence of the Holy Spirit and a changed life that you make it to the end. But what he says here is interesting. He says, in quoting Habakkuk, For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry, and the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. This is really interesting. I I say this a lot, but as you read through uh, many of the New Testament books, but particularly Hebrews, he quotes all the time, from the Septuagint. That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And it isn't always word for word what you'll have. So when I preach through Habakkuk, those sermons are online. When I preach through it, that's not exactly the same text I read. Because in our Bibles, we usually have the Masoretic translation of the text. They're 
They're both good. They're both accurate. We're not claiming one isn't, one isn't good. This author is quoting from the Septuagint. And if you go back and read the text yourself, you'll see that it's slightly different. It's slightly different. You want to think about why. Here's what it says, for instance, in the New King James, which comes from the, the Hebrew text. Then the Lord answered to me and said this, Write the vision and make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. Now we come to the part we're talking about. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by faith. A couple of things are, are different here. For one thing, uh, our author is going to interpret that. He's giving an interpretation of it that we need to hear. By the way, it's inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. So we know this is exactly how we should think about this text. But what he says here is, notice that in the, uh, the version that I read just now from the Old Testament of most of our Bibles, it speaks of this vision that is coming in, a, in the appointed time. And it says, it will speak when it comes. It, it, it. It's speaking of this vision. But as our author is interpreting this and reciting it out of the Septuagint, it speaks of he who is coming. He will not tarry. He is the one. First of all, what he's reminding us of is all these revelations from these Old Testament prophets were still pointing to Jesus. He is the revelation. He is the message. He is the one we've been waiting on. It's him. And notice what he says there. He speaks of those, Habakkuk was speaking of those who weren't faithful. The proud, right? And so forth. And he says here, the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. Now we know that text. Paul quotes it. It's in Habakkuk. It's a great text. The just shall live by faith. That's one of those texts that, praise the Lord, Martin Luther read and it kind of helped him to understand. How can this righteousness that's being revealed from heaven be a good thing? And he began to realize that it's talking about a righteous standing we have in Christ's righteousness, and that the just live by faith in Christ. And then what he says here is, in contrast to that, anyone who draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Now, just because it's going to be a while before we get here, how do we please God? Faith. Outside of faith, it is impossible to please God. And here's the example. Those who draw back are not living by faith. And so that God has no pleasure in them. The way to please God rightly is to walk and live by faith. For the righteous shall live by faith. And then I want you to notice here at the very end something very important that proves exactly what we're talking about. The author believes these are believers, that these are Christians, born-again Christians, he says, but we are not those who draw back to perdition. Notice it's not drawing back to lesser rewards. It's not drawing back to lesser uh, glories. It's drawing back to perdition, to damnation. It's drawing back to judgment. To have all these blessings in the gospel and to say, you know what, I reject all of them. I'll just go back to Moses and the blood of bulls and goats and the Levitical system which, by the way, was still in existence at that time. And if you want to go into more depth on this sometime, we might be able to, but we said at the very beginning of this journey that we thought this was while the temple was still standing and that there was persecution, but the persecution was light. All this is where we get that from. 
This was likely the edict of Claudius. He had kicked all the, the Jews out of Rome, and they had to disperse, and many of them didn't get to take their properties with them. They lost their properties. It may be to such a people that this letter is written who lost everything for their faith in Christ except their hope and their lives. And again, he's saying, look, don't be those. We are not those who draw back to perdition, but to those who believe to the saving of the soul. Now, one last thing that has to be addressed here is a complication. We are saved by faith. We are saved by faith. No question. That's what the Bible says over and over again. But we need to recognize that not everything that's called faith is faith. Not everything that's called saving faith is saving faith. My friends, when you look at this, he says, we are not only those who don't draw back to perdition, but we are those who believe, even to this point, to the saving of our souls. Now, we could get into a very difficult thing here on this. You've got some interesting characters in the scriptures like Simon Magus, Simon the Magician, who it says clearly in Acts had pistis, faith. He had belief. But he wasn't saved. He wasn't saved. What did he have faith in? I think it's very much like what James tells us. He had faith in facts. He had faith in the wonders the apostles were doing. But he didn't have faith in Jesus. And it became evident because he said, listen, I'll tell you what I'd like to do. I'd like to purchase from you the ability to have the power of the Holy Spirit. And I think what Peter, when Peter says basically to perdition with you and your money, what Peter is saying is this is an evidence that you are not born again. That you think the power of God is something to be bargained with, purchased, used, manipulated. It shows you don't even realize who you are or who God is. So my friends, when we speak about this, saving faith is what? It's believing in Jesus. It's believing in his person and his work. It's believing that he is the only begotten son of God who came into this world and gave his life as a ransom for our sins because we are desperate sinners in need of what only Jesus could offer us. That there is no way I can be righteous enough in my own standing to stand before God. Not reconciled to him. Can stand before him maybe in judgment, but not reconciled to him. In fact, there is no way I can stand in myself and be reconciled to a holy and righteous God. There is only one way given that that can happen, and that is through Jesus Christ, who is righteous enough to stand before God. The perfect, availing priest and king, I can stand in him. That's the only way. So I draw back from faith in him. Where can I stand? Only in judgment. Only in judgment. My friends, this is the message of Scripture We must believe Christ. We must believe in Him. We must trust in Him. Believe in Him. That what He did avails for us by God's grace. My friends, if we do that, our author says, you have all the reason in the world to have hopeful expectations and joy at the coming of the fulfillment of the promises of God on that day when God appoints.